Want to go ahead and read the thing? Sure. Medieval European castles have a feature that, once you know what to look for, you'll never miss it. A small protrusion from the exterior wall, usually high up with a small but noticeable hole. This was the latrine, the garderobe, the toilet from which everything just fell into the moat below. But what do you do when you don't have a castle, but a chamber pot just won't cut it? Well, the clever and industrious people of the time came up with the cesspit, a deep hole covered by boards that would gradually fill over time, but mixed with the dirt below so the smell would be contained, and then once it was filled, you had to make a decision, empty it by hand or board it over and dig a new one, which was the choice made by most folks. Well, in the year 1184 CE, Heinrich VI, Prince of Germany, had a problem. He had two vassal lords who were feuding and had already come to nearly fielding armies against each other. In an attempt to stave off a full-blown war between them, Heinrich ordered the nobles and their retinues, and a bunch of other nobles who wanted to attend for their own reasons, to meet him in the city of Erfurt and hash this whole mess out. They met in the Petersburg Citadel in the church on the grounds as men of peace settling a conflict without bloodshed. By the end of the day, around 60 nobles were dead, not through violence, but through one of the most vile and horrific accidents in history. Why were we just talking about cesspits? Well, listen on, dear listener, because it's gonna get gross. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the Erfurt Latrine Disaster. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, human waste historian at Relative Disasters University. And I'm his sister, Ella, bathroom architect for Relative Disasters Toilets. <laughs> it's branding. actually a very... It's all about the branding. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually a very nice job. I love it. Okay, so the sources for today's episode include the Chronicle of St. Peter Ju Erfurt, written from 1208 through 1355 by the Benedictine monks of the Monastery of St. Peter, the oldest monastery in Erfurt. Mm. Other sources include the Encyclopedia Britannica for background on the folks involved and the, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, oh. the Erfurter Latrinenstürz resources of the city of Erfurt itself. A big thank you to the very patient librarian who not only understood my terrible German, but was willing to discuss a thousand-year-old story about poop with me. That's a rare find. It is a rare find. Uh, she seems lovely. Some background. Mm-hmm. It helps to understand the people involved, and we'll get there, but first I want to talk about the city of Erfurt itself. Sounds medieval. So, it, it, it's a bit... Uh, <laughs> But then again, when you when you go to Europe, that's where, you know, things have been around for a lot longer than they've been around in the U.S., so sure. everything feels medieval. Erfurt is the capital of the central German state of Thuringen. Okay. Uh, the, the city was officially founded in 1120 CE. Oh. But there have... Yeah. Okay. But there ha have been settlements there since at least 742. Hmm. Well, organized settlements. Humans have lived there since the Paleolithic period of 10,000 BCE. So it's a nice spot. It, it, it's a great location. Okay. Uh, it's got a great climate. 
fertile land, a really cool river that goes through it. You got your forest to the southwest, and it's all nestled in a nice, cozy basin. If you're going to have humans settle in a place where they can stay alive for a long period of time, you could do a lot worse. That's what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, that sounds pretty sweet, actually. Erfurt is, it's nice. Um, it's got very old architecture. The, the modern city mm-hmm. basically was built up around the old city. So the closer you get to the center of the city, the older the buildings get. Cool. Erfurt has been the site of some really interesting things through history. Mm-hmm. None other than Martin Luther studied theology there. Okay. Before making his many uncomfortable questions of those in power. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are over 20 places of worship in the city, many of which have been around since before 1000 CE. Wow. Okay. Yeah. On a darker note, uh, when the Black Plague swept through in 1349 through 1350, the Jewish community of Erfurt was murdered in what has become known as the Erfurt Massacre, oh, citing the belief that Jews were either spreading the plague or that killing the Jews would spare the town from the plague. Oh, Um, man. Okay. Yeah. That is horrible. Uh, Figures of the dead vary widely, but at least 100 and possibly as many as 3,000 people were killed in the massacre. Wow. Okay. However, uh, we're going back to pre-plague time. Okay. When Germany was ruled by Friedrich and his son Heinrich VI. And, uh, And Heinrich had his hands full with some squabbling nobility while he was just trying to wage war against the Duchy of Poland at the time. I mean, he's got things to do. He doesn't need to be babysitting these people. He's busy. He's got a war. He's busy. He's got a war to do. Okay. Um, look, we can't have another war until we finish this war first. We have wars uh, at home. Exactly. <laughs> Stop saying we need to go out. Interestingly enough, Poland at this time had gone from being a kingdom to a duchy, Mm -hmm. and then it would become a kingdom again in just a few more years, but uh, it's this very narrow window of time when it was called the Duchy of Poland. Okay. Okay. So Heinrich VI was the oldest son of King Friedrich I Barbarossa, Mm -hmm. and he was an interesting historical figure if he'd just been allowed to, like chill in the castle and write poetry he probably would have been much happier okay i mean that's he did write poetry most of us would be happier yeah i mean there is that uh some of his poetry is still around today Mm -hmm. including some love poems that are like pretty interesting stuff yeah um did you read them i did i read a couple there's only a couple left spicy no they're not at all (laughs) spicy They're very much of the sort of courtly love vein. Okay. You know, lots of flowery promises that you don't intend to keep and all sorts. Gotcha. However, instead of sitting on a throne and writing poetry, Mm -hmm. his reign was one of near constant war and infighting from his own nobles. And while he was a capable military and political ruler, in fact, when he became king, he conquered Sicily. And was likely the most powerful ruler of Europe for a little while. Okay, listen, I am not great with geography. Yeah. But Sicily is some distance from Germany, is it not? A little bit. A little bit. He he extended the kingdom. Did he? However. Wait, did he take over Italy? No, he took over Sicily. Oh, Sicily's Um, at the bottom of Italy, isn't it? Well, Italy wasn't a country then. Okay. Italy was a collection of city-states. So you'd have Rome, and you had Sicily, and you had everybody else, and 
they all sort of fought for themselves and let the others hang, which is one of the reasons why Heinrich was able to conquer Sicily. So he Sicily. colonized. <laughs> he left he town. He conquered, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he went a great distance. Okay, that's interesting. And, and, and the borders of the Kingdom of Germany were much bigger back then, too, sure. because at the Kingdom of Germany was the remnant of the old Kingdom of the Franks. Mm-hmm. So there is a direct like throne line from Charlemagne to Heinrich, which is why you get a weird sort of vestigial title attached to him at this point in his life when he's heading to Erfurt to try to talk some sense into people. He is not, because I said, uh, he's not the king. His father is still alive. Right. He holds the title King of the Romans. Interesting. Not King of the Germans. Mm-hmm. King of the Germans was still Friedrich I Barbarossa, uh, who was a uh, a very, very important king uh, for the history of Germany and for the history of uh, what was the remnants of the Holy Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, uh, the next in line to the throne, this was, this was a really cool political period in Germany where they had the elector counts, mm-hmm. okay? So your king wasn't necessarily decided by a lineage, this group of 20 nobles got together and elected a king. That sounds so democratic. It's not at all. <laughs> so wait, no. if you were, if you had like a whole collection of princes, any one of them could be elected? Or, yes. Or if you were just like in upper management at the army or you um, married into the family? Theoretically, maybe. I'm not clear on, on the line of succession and, and who who is running for king okay but it was my understanding <laughs> that you Heinrich. had to be in you had to be a noble of some kind sure and there the basic two ways of getting elected were bribe the most people or threaten the most people mm. so you know if you if you did control a giant army your your campaign message as it were to these 20 nobles would be vote for me or else. Or else. Okay, gotcha. And if you control, like, a massive amount of gold, it's, vote for me, because I'm your new best friend. That mm. sort of thing. Uh, it would be sort of like the, the American equivalent would be if the Electoral College were just, like, the 20 richest people in the United States at the time. Uh-huh. And we didn't have a vote for president. They just got together and were like, you, you're president now. Okay. It doesn't sound... <laughs> No, of course not. (laughs) This is not a democratic process. This is still very, very much monarchy. Well, I'm very disappointed. Uh, You said voting and I got all excited. I know. Everybody gets excited when we talk about voting and then we talk about the actual way the voting was done and it's, oh. What a bummer. So Heinrich holds the title of King of the Romans, which again is because it's sort of this vestigial Holy Roman Empire thing. Mm -hmm. But his father is king of the Germans right. And uh, at this point. So he doesn't become king of the Germans until a few years after this incident when his father does finally pass away. Okay. So uh, his father, Friedrich I Barbarossa, was called Barbarossa because he had a red beard, and that is Italian for red beard. Cool. He did a bunch of forays into Italy, basically paving the way for Heinrich to finally conquer sicily what a helicopter parent am i right i know right come on just conquer just a little conquering (laughs) daddy will go first (laughs) (laughs) daddy will go first to show you it's safe um 
But uh, no, he was he was a very very competent leader, mm-hmm. and there are a couple of cool uh, medieval artifacts that still survive, including a golden bust of his head. Okay, uh, which is a weird thing because, okay, so so the very very sweet old German lady librarian that I was talking with mm-hmm. basically said that for a while people believed that it was actually a casting. Of his head. Like a death mask? In gold. Okay. Except that, you know, just you'd all have to conveniently forget the fact that that would straight up kill him. So it's yeah, not. Yeah, what a way to go. <laughs> what a way to go, right? Am I right? So uh, Barbarossa, unfortunately, his legacy as one of the greater kings of Germany uh, gets forever tainted by the fact that the Nazis decided to adopt his name for Operation Barbarossa when they blitzkrieged most of Europe, and it's too bad, because uh, Friedrich I seems like he would have been an interesting king, mm. and he, he, his name deserves to be attached to more than just Nazi propaganda. Oh, anyway. As we say on this podcast, Nazis, Nazis ruin, ruin everything. everything. <laughs> so let's get to our squabblers, okay? Yes, please. These are our two political pains in the neck for Heinrich. Uh, the Landgrave of Tulingen. Okay. A, a Landgrave is a position that is sort of equivalent to a count. They're mm-hmm. basically dude in charge of land. Now, his name is Ludwig III, and Ludwig III is a little punchy. He's a little bit of a punchy dude. I he's the kind of guy. Upper management that you, types. He's a little upper management yeah. yeah. He's not the kind of guy that you'd want to, like, accidentally glance too long at in a bar once he's had a couple mm. he's You're he's really a little pugnacious a yeah I he's gotcha. a little pugnacious which is funny because uh one of the titles that was applied to him was like uh ludwig the fair-minded or whatever and i was like oh maybe oh, it was who, sarcastic <laughs> who was trying to yeah maybe it was either sarcastic or somebody was trying to get a piece of the will or something ludwig the peaceful am i right am i right guys now ludwig was in conflict with the Archbishop of Mainz, okay. who was Conrad Wittelsbach. So Conrad and Ludwig don't like each other politically. One's mm-hmm. an archbishop, one's a landgrave. They have slightly competing interests, Okay, mainly that Ludwig looked upon Mainz as like, hey, that's a nice kingdom right next door to Turlingen. Oh, I kind of want it. He's coveting. <laughs> He's a little covetous. And Conrad Wittelsbach, as the Archbishop of Mainz, had a real problem with people who weren't uh, super religious, which Ludwig, Ludwig was sort of a, from what I understand, a lip service to religion kind of dude. Mm, okay. So they didn't like each other personally. Mm-hmm. And then Ludwig started to do military exercises near the border, which is this very hilly border, by the way. The hills play a part in this. Okay. And he starts doing all these military exercises, specifically ones like, hey, how to charge up a hill real fast. Mm. And so the Archbishop of Mainz gets a little concerned. Sure. And he orders the construction of a castle on one of the hills. Seems like the next logical step, doesn't it? Well, it does 
if you're actively like worried about invasion but the problem is they are still part of the same kingdom Mm -hmm. they're still part of the kingdom of germany and it would be a little bit like if you know new mexico started erecting border forts along the border to i don't know arizona Mm. the folks in arizona would get a little excuse me one moment about that sure and uh with ludwig the peaceful being so fair-minded, mm-hmm. uh, he saw it as a provocation. Okay. And he decided to take a a, a wonderful, <laughs> this is a wonderful thing here. Uh, this is in the most gigantic air quotes I've ever seen in a history text. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, sent, he sent a unit of soldiers to, quote-unquote, measure the border. <laughs> okay. This is a problem because you've got, Conrad ordering people to build a castle and Ludwig like, maybe I'll just move these markers a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. So before this could erupt into a major conflict, Heinrich calls for a Hoftag. So a Hoftag is when the king, or the in this case the king of the Romans, mm-hmm. calls for a special meeting of the court. And it is usually over one issue, right? So it's it's not a general assembly where nobles can come and they can petition this is the king says this one thing is the problem mm-hmm. let's get together and sort this nonsense out okay so because he was on his way towards poland he was basically in the neighborhood so he declared that the hoftag would take place in erfurt uh now erfurt as we said is the capital of Turingen. Mm-hmm. so we have the small political problem of Conrad being like, yeah, I'm not walking into quote-unquote enemy territory. Mm-hmm. So Heinrich comes up with a brilliant solution. He says, okay, we're going to have the meeting in the Petersburg Citadel, which is the big, you know, defensive... It's not a castle. It's just a... It's a, a fort. It's like an... It, yeah, it's like a fort structure. Uh-huh. But in that citadel sits the Church of St. Peter. So Heinrich says, we will hold the meeting in the Church of St. Peter. Now, that was a brilliant political move because, one, the church is large enough to accommodate everyone because, Mm -hmm. again, the Benedictine monks are living there. So it's a big building. And two, holding it in the church instead of in a more administrative building would placate the archbishop who was being forced to meet on unfriendly ground. Gotcha. And it would keep everybody on their best behavior. Nobody wants to walk into a church and draw steel, basically. No, you just don't do that. You don't do that. It's rude. It's, it's rude. very rude. Mm-hmm. On July 26th, everybody who was anybody, from the counts and dukes to other landgraves and elector counts, was there. A total of well over 100 of the Kingdom of Germany's top nobility. Mm-hmm. The assembly was held in the second floor of the church in a room that was formerly used for monastic writings and other pursuits. A scriptorium. Yes. So the room (laughs) is a wooden floor. Okay. With these stone alcoves sort of above it with little chairs in them Mm -hmm. so that you could, you could sit and you could have, you know, a meditative moment. And so all the nobles go up the stairs to the second floor And they all gather on the floor. They're milling about. And Heinrich calls the court to order. Now, Heinrich takes a seat in one of the small stone alcoves Mm -hmm. while the nobles all gather on the floor, which began to noticeably creak under their combined weight. 
Uh-oh. It was an old building, and old buildings are creaky, right? <sighs> okay. So Ludwig and Conrad step forward to plead their respective cases to Heinrich, and the floor collapsed. Oh, jeez. Okay. Yeah. Now this sends the assembled nobles plummeting down to the ground floor. Mm-hmm. Many were injured, and a few died in the fall, but the worst was yet to come. That floor, the ground floor, also collapsed. And remember when we were talking about cesspits at the beginning? What was underneath, Greg? And about how what you do once they were filled up was just board them over and dig a new one? Okay. Well, let's talk science. <clears throat> so, the long term effects of fecal matter on wood are actually very interesting. Uh, humans get rid of a lot of nitrogen and different bacteria when they go to the bathroom, and sure. in these structures, all of that waste would mix with the dirt to create a mixture that was fairly inert. It didn't smell as bad as you'd think it would, and mm-hmm. it didn't react with its environment too badly. It all just sort of kind of sat there and was gross. However, once the cesspit was full and boarded over, then the gases, bacteria, and various chemical chains that would that were there would chemically bond with the wood, degrading it over time. Oh, no. And what you'd get is one day you'd have a nice solid board, uh-huh. and the next it would be a collection of sawdust in the shape of a board, and you wouldn't know it until you stepped on it. Okay. Are we talking like an open pit full of wet waste, or is it like yes. dirt? It is, okay, so... Describe the sewage. <laughs> what is the situation? <laughs> I am going to describe the sewage, okay? And I'm going to do it using the, the term of the time used in the Chronicle of St. Peter's Erfurt. Okay? okay? They refer to it as, quote, unquote, mud. And I am going to call it <sighs> mud. Okay. So the end result was that the nobles that had survived the fall mm-hmm. were now dumped into a... 20 foot deep pit of mud full of quote mud unquote gross okay if you were injured you had no way to escape right and even those who, who survived the first fall relatively unscathed had no real way to climb back out of the mess mm-hmm. uh fortunately the monks of of saint peter threw down ropes and hauled as many as they could to safety but all told over 60 nobles about 10 to 12 of them being major nobility mm-hmm. drowned in this cesspit in an oh, utterly horrifying way to go. That is, I think one of the worst things that we've is, ever I, talked about. I can't think of, I can't think of a worse like method of death. It's really bad. Yikes. Okay. Now, some accounts state that Ludwig fell in but was able to climb out. Mm-hmm. Uh, some put him and Conrad in an adjoining room at the time of the collapse, and they were able to be rescued later. Mm-hmm. Heinrich himself seems to have avoided the whole thing by staying seated in his alcove, which, again, was stone right. and not part of the wooden floor structure and did not collapse. They did have to, like, find a ladder to get him down later, but it's not as bad he didn't as... fall in and die. yeah. Uh, So the ignominious deaths of so many members of Germany's aristocracy caused momentary disarray. But this is actually a really interesting political part here. Mm -hmm. The various lines and systems of succession held and no civil war erupted. So any time you have a major wipeout of a ruling faction. Sure. Nine times out of ten, you're going to get a civil war out of it. Because two people are going to decide, no, I should be in charge. And they will raise armies 
and they will and they will go at each other. But that didn't but happen. The way that the Kingdom of Germany was set up, and again, this was still under Friedrich the First Barbarossa. Right. Basically, all the nobles were just like, oh, okay, next in line becomes, you know, fills the position of this guy, and that's it. Hmm. There were no arguments over heredity, no arguments over succession. There was one minor disagreement among the elector counts, Mm -hmm. but even that was settled without, like, so much as fisticuffs. Interesting. So that was really, really impressive and probably helped keep the kingdom of Germany from utterly collapsing, which it absolutely could have done. Mm -hmm. If you have a ruling party made up of about 180 nobles and a third of them just drowned in a cesspit. Right. It is real hard to walk out of that. Okay. And they did it. So that's politically, that's a really, really impressive thing. Let's say, um, no, this was not a case of, you know, game of porcelain thrones. Everyone did what they were supposed to do. That is the worst pun you've ever made. Is it? I think it's up there. <laughs> I'm I'm not laughing. That was horrible. Or down there, I should No. Yeah. Nobody should laugh at that. Please don't laugh at that. If you're laughing at that, then you have a worse sense of humor than I okay. do. <clears throat> the end result, it sort of worked out kind of well for Heinrich. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the nobles that died were sort of the the old guard, right? right? So people who were who were kind of squabbly, kind of set in their ways, and when their successors all came into power at the same time, it would be sort of like if um, I don't know, every single person in Congress got voted out and new people came in, all like at it's once. that that rapid and that it's that radical of a change, right? So all of the people that uh, had been mucking things up for Heinrich and and to an extent his father mm-hmm. uh, were kind of just gone in one fell swoop which mm-hmm. leads to this is a fun sidebar okay the modern conspiracy theory about this all right so this has absolutely no factual evidence mm-hmm. at all to back it up like all good conspiracy theories there's not a grain of truth to it but you just gotta believe you just gotta believe. <laughs> um, I'm reading a, a fascinating book on conspiracy theories right now. I'm hoping to make it into an episode later this year. Uh, and it is definitely one of those kind of things. But anyway, okay. so the theory is that Heinrich actually planned the whole thing to make his life as king easier and unite Germany for the campaigns he was planning. Mm-hmm. Because by wiping out such a huge cross-section of nobility at once, it not only avoided the rumbles of war between Ludwig and Conrad, but also gave him a whole bunch of successors to formally recognize, meaning they'd basically stay in line. Now, this does not hold water as a historical fact. For one thing, if it were a planned event, there was no way to tell who was going to get killed, and many of his allies at court were among those who died as well. So Hmm. let's, you know. Okay. Uh, And another... He could have very easily perished in this as well. Uh, so probably not his plan. But he was in his little stone alcove. Sure, but if he had been on the floor at the time it gave way, he would have gone down into the pit with everybody else. But if like, he knew the floor was likely to give way. And that's the thing. How would you know that a floor was likely to give because way? Because you like, saw through the, all the boards. And then you were like, Ooh. oh, no, it's the nitrogen in the human Oh, waste. no. Yeah, no, I see. I this, see. Yep. This theory has legs. I this like it. This theory's got legs. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Justice for Heinrich. 
Maybe maybe not justice for Heinrich, but maybe justice, <laughs> justice for, for the sixty people who died. Well, justice for justice for for he, uh, Lendgrave Heinrich, who was one of the more confusing nobles to research in this, because I kept coming across, and then you know the 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 lovely and wonderful Heinrich perished as well, and I was like, but no, he's sitting. Oh, there's two guys named Heinrich. That's mm. a problem. And in the historical documents, they just keep referring to each of them as Heinrich. So you have to kind of follow along with which one they're talking about. You've got Heinrich L and Heinrich M, like in a kindergarten class. I literally had to label them. Yeah, I believe you. So, so one of the Heinrichs did die in it. But okay. anyway, so yeah, th- this is not a this is not a theory that holds any any water whatsoever. But it's uh, the the outcome was definitely more beneficial than not for Heinrich. Okay. Also, there would have been no way to predict whether or not the country would have plunged into civil war. So, I mean, you know, yeah, you don't want that either. Sure. Uh, after Erfurt, uh, Heinrich just left. Uh, <laughs> he did not stick around. Um, there are some accounts that have him out of there that night. Okay. Um, <laughs> basically, without even properly adjourning the Hofstag, uh, he just sort of booked and was gone. Yeah. Um, which, all right, yeah, benefit of hindsight and everything, but can you blame him in the moment? I, I'm kind of like, you know what? This is disgusting. Yeah. Uh, now Ludwig and Conrad both survived Mm -hmm. and no war erupted between them either. A lot of the people that were killed, uh, were sort of their, you know, their, their allies Mm -hmm. on different sides of this thing. So I think... It's not outside of the realm of possibility that once both of them recognized that they were pretty much the only ones who wanted to fight with each other, Mm -hmm. they both just kind of chilled out and went home. Interesting. Okay. So it did serve its purpose in that uh, they did not go to war, but uh, it ruined Heinrich's uh, Poland campaign Mm -hmm. and it uh, ruined a lot of people. Yeah. So... That's it. The day that over 60 members of German nobility drowned in poo. The Erfurt Latrine disaster. That has to be one of the weirdest and yeah. most disgusting tragedies we have ever talked about. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't think of... I, I can think of ones that are certainly more tragic. Mm-hmm. I can think of ones that are a little more weird. But sure, unlike but <laughs> that's very subjective. Greg. But this, yeah, and this combination is just there's the temptation to take this as like a funny story, but there really isn't anything funny about it. No. You know, like it other than the punchline of like, hey, there's nobles drowned in poop. But it's like that's horrifying when you think about it. Like truly, even the smallest bit of human empathy, is. It, it's just not okay. And so I saw, I first learned about this from like a, uh, you know, a a weirdest historical things that happened kind of, kind Mm -hmm. of article. And they were treating it like a, like a big joke. And I was kind of like, yeah, but it would have been a big joke if everybody fell in there and it was only up to their knees and everybody just got embarrassed. And then they went home without starting a war. Right. But no, like 60 people drowned in it. Like that is that perfect medium of revolting and saddening really so yeah yeah I, it, there's not a lot of humor to find in that other than like what actually happened and then you dig it, it reminds me a little bit of the molasses flood 
Because people are like, oh, people drowned in molasses. Yeah, horribly. And yeah. then you get to this, and it's, yeah, horribly. So thank goodness that our uh, waste management facilities have come such a long way since the 1100s. Amen. <laughs> love my bathroom. Love yes. my sewer line. Bathrooms are great. Uh, love my waste treatment plant. Mm. So I have a question for yeah. you. Of course. Since all of this took place within a religious community, was there yeah. ever any kind of like, this is the wrath of God? Not that I could find. Kind of uh, And what's interesting is because all the chronicling was done by the Benedictine monks, you there's definitely, think. you would think that they would put in some sort of like, you know, the, the righteous survived, well, the, the vile meta just fate or something. Mm -hmm. But no, it's very matter of fact. It's like on this day, this thing happened, these people died, and it's sad. But no editorializing. No editorializing, really. That's really interesting, don't you think? Well, the Benedictines didn't really, uh, they didn't, they didn't really editorialize too, too much, especially the German ones. Very factual, very punctual people, I'd imagine. You know, but... you, you get to, you get to your, you get to your thing on time and then you say what happened. You don't elaborate on the point. But there's no separation know. of church and state. Not Germany, at this point, no. Right? No, because the king is crowned technically by the Pope, mm -hmm. although this particular... Well, when Heinrich was crowned, he and the Pope at the time had a alliance of convenience, but they, they didn't really seem to like each other from what I could dig into. Mm -hmm. um, Friedrich I had a good relationship with his Pope, but then his Pope got either killed or removed from power or just died. And then another Pope came in and there was also an anti-Pope for a while. Mm. So it's that, it's that like area of history where there's just so much turnover of historical figures mm -hmm. that you don't really think about it in terms of like there really isn't a good modern um equivalency where you know nowadays a pope will be a pope for a very very long time and mm -hmm. then you know back then it was a pope was a pope from anywhere from five minutes to 50 years so okay yeah. so you think that kind of turnover really affected the way the story was written about like by the contemporary biographers no, I just think that it meant that whatever relationship between church and state existed at one point was always going to be sort of in flux because you never knew when either the head of state would be overthrown mm -hmm. or the head of the church would be overthrown. So I think that perhaps the Benedictine monks might have been just, look, we're just going to say what happened instead of try to editorialize to please you know, the, the politics of somebody who might not even be there in a month. Because you know? i got to tell you, when I think of the <laughs> wrath of God. Most people think lightning storms, meteors. Ella, Ella thinks of poo. I think of like dramatic collapses into cesspools. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. That's interesting. Okay. So, I mean, if, if this had been a thing where like one of the two arguers had gotten up and been struck dead by a heart attack in the middle of it mm -hmm. there might have been something to that but this was just like it was seen by everybody as just a horrific accident which it was which it was yeah i mean i just think that's you imagine, so interesting like, yeah the worst thing is like you survive the fall from the second floor mm -hmm. and then the first floor gives out under you it's like oh god yeah that's a I, horror movie it's it's horrible and apparently the only reason why the first floor gave out was because of like the sudden collapsing weight of 
not just the people hitting it, but also the, the collapsed beams and the mm-hmm. stones. And then you have all that stuff eating away at the wood from underneath it. And oh. it's just, yeah, it's not going to hold. That's horrific. Okay. Yeah. Well, it yeah. definitely is one of the worst things we've talked about, I think. <laughs> I hope you have a palate cleanser after this one. I sure do, uh. Greg. All right, well. Although we give you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to share some insights we missed or just shame us publicly. You know you do. Why not use our Instagram, at relative.disasters. Speaking of getting things wrong, Mm -hmm. I do want to take a moment here to apologize profusely to all the very nice listeners in Germany who have... uh, Who have just listened to you. (laughs) Who have just listened to me butcher their their beautiful language over and over again. I'm very sorry. I was trying. I was trying. And, uh, (laughs) you know. It's all we can do uh, sometimes. I do want to really, really thank the the very nice and very patient uh, librarian that I got to uh, email back and forth with uh, about this subject. Um, Very good. Thank you. Thank you, research librarian from Erfurt. Uh, we also need to shout out Lynn, our... Oh. Our, <laughs> is she on our staff yet? <laughs> I think she's our executive producer at this point. She just There's no money involved. So uh, Because this was a listener suggestion from Lynn. Um, oh, it was? It was oh, months dang. and months ago. It had completely oh, fallen okay. off my radar until I was looking back at some older stuff today. So cool. thank you, Lynn. This was thanks, a, Lynn. a weird one. Our, our audience thanks you. Mm. Do they? Do, <laughs> Do they, they Greg? Do they? <laughs> Another thing to worry about. Yep. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. How are you going to raise the tone, Ella? Well, Greg. <laughs> I'm going to. I mean, you've got nowhere to go but up, so. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's really setting the bar pretty low there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we are going to Siberia next time, and we're going to talk Ooh. about a meteor that may or may not have hit. Oh yes, the Siberian forest. Um, it could also have been a comet. So mm-hmm. we're mm-hmm. going to get into all that that is involved in the Tunguska event. Yes, yes, I love the Tunguska event. Uh, my favorite theory is that it was where an angel reached down and touched the earth, which is forbidden. Mm. So there's all sorts of fun ones with this. I uh, like that. And I like that you're actually doing the research on this so I can just sit back and and, uh, and chime in my nonsense like that. <laughs> oh, so our usual episode. <laughs> yeah, just the usual episode then. That sounds like an amazing disaster and I cannot wait to talk about it with you. <laughs>